again, the linguists have the tendency to explain the difference between animal languages and human languages always in the form of a greater cognitive power. So the language of the animals, for instance, of the bees, etc., is a, a poor system of science which has only a pragmatical and a utility. It's only in terms of the utilization utility. While, according to Lindus, the human language is so complex that it uh, allows to express a huge quantity of uh, information, etc. But also, again, the event of language is only uh, conceived in the perspective of cognition. A greater cognition was made possible by human language. And then uh, this is uh, also false because, uh, as you know, now the <coughs> people who work, scientists who work on the animal language, <coughs> discover every day what, uh, traits or characters that we thought before only peculiar of the human language every day. And now it is an animal, not this the animal language. Hello, and welcome to the Radical Thoughts podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing Giorgio Gombin's book, Infancy and History. You just heard a clip of Agamben giving a lecture on animal, man, and language in 2011, and now we're listening to 22 Ghosts 3 by 9 Inch Nails. But in a second, you'll hear us discuss the nature of language, infancy, historical experience, and whether or not Agamben is a crank. So I think we've all got like an inkling of what he means by infancy, but it's not entirely clear. Yeah, my, I kind of took a guess that he's not necessarily a guess, an educated guess. I guess that he's talking about like, um, like an infant is someone who can't speak yet. They don't have the, the ability to use language and a big part of the, the you know the point of the book is looking at exactly what does it mean to come into language what is the purpose of language like at the beginning he uses this uh talks uses this aristotle quote where he talks about the difference between you know human and animal and you know human and animal and you know humans can tell the difference between good and evil and uh this has to do with the ability of humans to use linguistic abstraction and see might something to do with this kind of idea he has about pure experience this kind of um this realm of like pure pre-linguistic experience yeah he has a pretty good bit on what he's getting at on page 58 where he says in terms of human infancy experience is the simple difference between the human and the linguistic the individual as not already speaking, as having been and still being an infant, this is experience. Uh, and then skipping down a bit on the page, um, uh, the very fact that infancy exists as such, that is, in other words, experience as the transcendental limit of language, rules out language as being in itself totality and truth. If there was no experience, if there was no infancy, Language would undoubtedly be a game in Wittgenstein's sense, its truth coinciding with its correct usage according to logical rules. But from the point where there is experience, where there is infancy, whose expropriation is the subject of language, then language appears as the place where experience must become truth. And I, and I think that what uh, Agamben is getting at with trying to move away from this conception of language as a system of uh, signs or uh, merely a game of uh, different uses, is that this entering into uh, language um, also, in a sense, transforms uh, language itself and starts to produce 
what could be kind of, kind of described as uh, a discourse that um, doesn't try to get to a uh, notion of truth that exists outside of uh, language or experience, but almost cr- creates it within uh, language itself through the, uh, I guess, the, 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 the use of language, uh, speaking to one another. Um, I think what will help us get to um, the core of what he's getting, at what Agamben is trying to express with infancy, is re- returning to what Agamben sees as uh, experience. So the, the, the subtitle of the uh, main essay in this collection is on the destruction of experience, and uh, Agamben has a very kind of um, particular uh, way of uh, conceiving of experience. It's not a, a matter of like uh, perceiving things or just sort of encountering things as we uh, know in our everyday lives, but a way of uh, translating what we experience uh, into language and through the act of translation, gaining a kind of authority through our power to uh, use words. He um, uh, suggests that the, the the proverb and the maxim are these kinds of forms that are able to um, convey experience to others through language. And what we've lost in modernity, according to Ogamben, is the capacity to translate uh, our experiences into language because we've... Um, our manner of knowing the world has become shifted onto um, scientific instruments and numbers and become the uh, topic or the the reserve of expertise. So we've sort of become alienated from our experience of the world, of our uh, capacity to express that experience through language. And he sees... uh, infancy as uh, a kind of seed for uh, not returning to the experience that we had pre-modernity, but the the seed for a kind of future experience and a, a new engagement with uh, language that'll bring us beyond this destruction of experience or this alienation from experience. Yeah, he talks about um, how Benjamin brings up World War One as this kind of catastrophe where there's this kind of split and this diagnosis of the poverty of experience where you know there's this general uh says today however we know that the destruction experience no longer necessitates a catastrophe and that humdrum daily life in any city will suffice our modern man's average day average day contains virtually nothing that can still be translated into experience so i guess you know like i said he's kind of talking about how there's just this um, sense of, um, I guess, homogenization of experience and uh, a sense through which he says modern man makes his way in home in the evening, weird by a jumble of events, but however entertaining or tedious, unusual or commonplace, heroine or pleasurable, none of them will have become experience. So I guess it's uh, the fact that these ex- nothing can be really translated into something meaningful through language. It's just be has become this kind of a uh, banality. I think one of the things that's that's interesting that he's clearly drawing on Benjamin from um, is that he he's kind of inverting the notion that you know it, it, it's not that experience is like this great amazing like totally different from outside the norm thing he's kind of saying experience is your capacity to like really grapple with and comprehend and express to others and have them learn from you like in your daily regular experiences um because he like your daily life because he he says you know that the the ability to convey experience, uh, according to him, used to be founded on your ability to talk about what you knew through your daily life with others around you, and hence things like medieval travel literature um, or or ancient kind of epic literature that 
describes long journeys and fantastical events aren't really grounded in experience because you can't really wrap your head around what they're talking about because it's 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 all built on this idea of you know these people wandered off really far and they have these events happen that can't be um can't be experientially conveyed to to the receivers and so it, it with benjamin it's kind of that thing that like world war one is a giant uh catastrophe it it is a, a a very unusual and and striking thing but it it actually robs you of experience despite being totally you know new and and out of the ordinary right he says uh, for experience has its necessary correlation not in knowledge but in authority that is to say the power of words and narration no one now seems to wield sufficient authority to guarantee the truth of an experience and if they do, it does not in the least occur to them that their own authority has its roots in an experience. On the contrary, it is the character of the present time that all authority is founded on what cannot be experienced, and nobody would be inclined to accept the validity of an authority whose sole claim to legitimation was experience. And he says something about the youth movement's denial, the merits of experience. And he also talks about how the disappearance of the maximum, the proverb which are kind of uh, how experience stands as an authority and uh, of a slogan replacing them kind of shows this loss of experience. And it seems that he's critical of um, those who um, want to uh, address i suppose the the alienation of modern life th through appeals to uh direct or shocking experience um uh and that this um uh call for a kind of pure experience or experience that is uh unmediated is still a kind of way of trying to cope with the destruction of experience not a way of actually uh, saving it, um, because the the, 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 the the experience that he's um, hoping to well, not not necessarily bring back, but the the, the experience that he's observing or uh, trying to write about is uh, located in language itself. It can't be. Um, it, it doesn't occur outside of language. The the, the actual communicability of it is the part is wrapped up in the experience itself he has this way of seeing you know the the interactions of, of language as being found a foundational part of uh human experience that doesn't like like in the passage i read it, it he doesn't want it to fall down into just some sort of game that has uh that is just like a set of arbitrary kind of like interactions and rules that people play and it's not just language because he talks about like what he sees as distinct in human beings and he's kind of drawing on the Husserl structuralist like you know language discourse things he says that human beings have a kind of tumultuous division of language and speech because for him he says that you know he actually says that all animals have language in in the sense of you know just like a, a pure kind of like expression expressibility and he actually at one point says that like animals are like language kind of like purely in a sense like they they can only express themselves as like a linguistic uh expression but they don't have a a, a speech that that is kind of divided within their language which he he identifies that in human beings and in the kind of way that we we have language as sort of an interruption upon our own an interruption on our own sense of infancy our pre-linguistic experience but one that comes from the interaction of our biological existential being and our cultural uh, development. This ev event of speech is something that kind of interrupts our pre-linguistic infancy, but comes from it and in turn kind of defines it through the expressions of speech. You're able to kind of 
make your experience uh, thicker and tangible in a way that and, and that that gives you kind of a, a self-recognition of your development from infancy and, and the roots of your experience as such. Yeah, I thought one example that he gave about his kind of whole thesis about experience is a uses the example of drug addiction. Talks about how modern addicts versus like the classic intellectuals who discovered drugs in the 19th century. Whereas um he says, um, what distinguishes modern addicts from the intellectuals who discovered drugs in the 19th century is that the latter, or at least the less lucid among them, could still delude themselves that they were undergoing a new experience. Well, for the former, there is nothing more than the discarding of all experience. So I guess what he's kind of saying is, you know, for example, he's like intellectuals, like in Baudelaire or whatever, they were able to kind of uh, use language to um, express some kind of some kind of novel, effective experience. Whereas today, like a drug addict is you know, trying to uh, basically um, escape reality and um he talks about how it's kind of like um more like being subjected to um a laboratory maze for rats since we haven't really introduced anything about who Agamben is and and frankly I, this is the first thing I've read by him but I, I did think this book was more intriguing than I expected especially because like the way that he frames it as a, a kind of a philosophical investigation on history and um he's you know he's influenced by benjamin he's critical of the kind of hegelian idea of like progress through like this encompassing dialectic but he he clearly has this kind of he's trying to develop a sense of history that has what could be called progress but not in the usual sense um he's trying to incorporate a, a sign a sort of scientific idea of like human biology in relationship to culture as part of like the historical subject. Um, and I thought that was all interesting because this guy is recently very controversial because he has a romantic streak. He's very technical. He's very critical of like, you know, this idea of technocracy and, and that technology is like reducing us that we're being quantified. And, and most recently he's some people, I haven't read actually a lot of his like writing on this, but I know that recently he's, been characterized as kind of a a covid crank like you know covid is just the the power of the state just giving legitimacy to the power of the state to control our bodies and and monitor us and and you know biopower and stuff um so having only known him for that stuff I, i was actually kind of shocked at how much of this book what didn't just resort to like these arguments about you know the power of numbers is, you know, reducing the human spirit or something. I thought it was much more complex than I was expecting. Well, as I was uh, telling Donald before we started recording, that uh, what I've read about this book is that it marks the uh, trend, Agamben's transition from writing largely about more aesthetic themes to uh, starting to discuss uh, more, you know, uh, ethical and political uh, concepts. And what is also absent here is um, any mention of Carl Schmitt or Michel Foucault, who uh, are really his kind of direct influences for a lot of his much more like uh, uh, well-known political work, but also like the theoretical basis for a lot of the stuff that he's written about uh, COVID-19. um, but it, 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 I think that there is a uh, glimmer of his um, opposition between, I guess, uh, well, I mean, he it, 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 it definitely doesn't like celebrate a kind of pure uh, experience, but he's definitely very skeptical or suspicious of the uh, turn to uh, modern science or uh, expertise. Um, as it seems to displace um, uh, human uh, capacities or like forms of uh, of knowledge that de- are derived from experience, so I uh, I think that it's present in a very embryonic way in in, in this work, or like he, he's always had a kind of 
Ben, he's always had a kind of suspicion of science that is probably more linked to like how he reads Heidegger and Arendt than his other stuff. He definitely comes out of a sort of mm, less Hegel influenced Frankfurty suspicion kind of. I, I was just mainly surprised that there were sections where he talks about like actual studies in like the field of biology and stuff. Yeah, that was actually the stuff that I found the most compelling. Yeah, I was like, oh, that's like, because I mean, it was still very like broad because he's trying to make this like kind of abstract philosophical point about language being like human language and speech being this kind of mid interplaying section of overlap between biology and culture. And they inherit like the dual, he calls it the dual inheritance. But it, it could actually, if you were, if you were someone studying like biology and like language as like a broad sort of meta theoretical point of departure and say like, I'm conducting this research and stuff to try and see how this kind of way of viewing language might play out in like, like I was like, this is the kind of thing that you could actually, you know, maybe do something with, even though it's like very highfalutin like and abstract yeah i mean he's kind of trying to say that you know there's you have like the kind of chomsky in view of language that there's like this innate kind of biological aspect to it and then you have the kind of pure social constructivist view and he's kind of trying to say that language is these two areas rather than purely one of them and i thought that was i thought that was probably the most compelling part of it but he definitely seems critical of like the scientific worldview of instrumentalizing and quantifying everything. Yeah, no, yeah, he, he has a habit of uh, putting forward uh, an opposition between two terms and saying, "Okay, neither of these. It's something in the middle, or it's something entirely different." And um, I was wondering what you both thought about um, his uh, uh, curiously titled uh, essay on Adorno and uh, Benjamin, the Prince and the Frog, um, about uh, the exchanges between Adorno and Benjamin on the uh, uh, matter of materialism and uh, structure and superstructure. And how he reads uh, Benjamin's uh, solution to, I guess, uh, a certain impart, uh, sort of uh, deterministic impasse of uh, seeing the relationship between the economic and cultural. It. I thought it was interesting because he kind of takes that Benjamin is taking a stance of causality or direct relation that one might be tempted to think like oh that's that's like the more you know stalinist side that's the more kind of like misrepresentative side whereas like adorno's like you need to find you know the mediation between like the culture and the society like the the, the act of like artistic creation and the society but agamemnon kind of goes like actually marx doesn't represent even though like Marx uses the term base and superstructure, but he never talks about it as just like this dialectical, abstractly mediated relationship. And he kind of defends that like Benjamin might actually be more acute in in presenting a more direct relationship, precisely by precisely by relating it as a direct relationship through the praxis of people. Um, so there's not like some broad mediating sphere it's just that human activity is already like a causal link between you know this kind of like base superstructure um sort of aspects like so the the direct correspondence is precisely in like the human activity but and it's a an interesting uh shift in uh, emphasis from uh, uh, this kind of uh, mediation between you know the artistic creation and the total social process to a uh, more Benjaminian model of like direct correspondence between uh, the two different kinds of pra- practices, and 
he seems to introduce that to defend a kind of use of philology as a, uh, a method of uh, figuring out what's going on in history without uh, resorting to that uh, distinction between the structure and the superstructure. It's kind of interesting, too, that like the last section of the book is sort of like a manifesto for... I don't know if it was a review that ever actually got off the ground, but he, he it's basically a review that seeks to produce like a philological kind of political critique. Yeah, and I think that uh, it is... Well, I mean, it's not, not a veiled critique, but a pretty direct critique of... Um, uh, those who would propose like a, a Marxist theory of literature or a Marxist theory of film or like a Marxist theory of, I don't know, clothing, uh, to say that the, 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 the task of um, a historical materialist approach is not to apply this external uh, doctrine to uh, some kind of cultural subject as if it is uh, separate from uh, what Marxism is dealing with, but to see their unity through practice, um, and to, and 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 to see that you know to, to draw on the Benjamin example that Gambin does that the the, the the price of duty on a cask of wine is uh, particularly relevant. It, it's of the same status as something in a Baudelaire poem. And it's not like a social context that's outside uh, the poem, but uh, on the, on the same level as it. With this section and some other parts, he's making a kind of interesting attempt to present him his work on history as a new intervention in historical materialism. Um, like he he pretty explicitly claims that he's kind of like advancing like a Marxist kind of working of history. But I thought it was interesting reading. So it's always interesting, even if maybe these terms are broad and bong rippy and, and not all that practical. It is interesting to see how he's trying to still kind of like reframe this as like a new thinking of what Marx is doing to like the Hegelian, you know, dialectic and all that stuff. Because I didn't really expect him to frame his arguments as much in that way, as explicitly as he does. Because I because I've uh, have him associated with a more post Heideggerian post structuralist approach. Yeah, I thought this was the part that uh, I was kind of interested in. It says a materialism which conceived of economic factors as a casual prima in the same sense in which the god of metaphysics is a casual sui and first principle of everything would only be the obverse of metaphysics, not its route. A similar ontological splitting irremediably betrays the Marxist concept of practice, praxis as a concrete and unitary source reality. And it is this, rather than an alleged dialectical conception of cause and effect, which should be set against vulgar interpretation. Praxis is not, in fact, something which needs a dialectical mediation or to be represented as positive in the form of the superstructure, but is from the beginning what truly is, and from the beginning possesses wholeness and concreteness. Man finds his humanity in praxis. This is not because, in addition to carrying out productive work, he also transposes and develops these activities within a superstructure by thinking, writing, poetry, etc. If a man is human, if he is a Gautung's ways facing a being whose essence is generic. His humanity and his species being must be integrally present within the way in which he produces his material life, that is, within praxis. So I guess he's trying to say that this kind of, this idea of like a mediated relationship between cause and effect isn't really the way to go when we have to look at praxis itself as the whole, as already like an entire a unity, I guess. It, it's sort of like saying that totality is within human action because of his kind of like Benjaminian inheritance. Like he, he's he's someone who's clearly skeptical of like claims to just like this pure, you know, like mediating totality. And he, he's kind of saying like 
the totality is like the human action, the praxis, like human beings as they already are in concrete like existence. And because of that, like it's a totality that can't just be like abstracted as a totality. Like it, it already invokes you have to look at like individual uh concrete like actions and relationships and like kind of non non-representative non-mediated way yeah he's like saying you can't just say that there's like a like a dialectical two-way street between the base and the superstructure because um it says marx abolishes the metaphysical distinction between animal ratio between nature and culture between matter and form in order to state that within praxis animality is humanity nature is culture matter is form so then he says this is true the relationship between structure and superstructure can neither be one of casual determination or one of dialectical mediation but one of direct correspondence and i don't know how i feel about this because it just seems like if you're trying to like find like casual relations between like different layers of you know the economy and ideology and politics like it 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 just seems like it kind of flattens it all and it doesn't allow you to actually like find like um the the kind of patterns of determination and, and the casual like uh mechanisms that like are at play it just seems to kind of solve the problem by saying that well it's superstructure and structure are all united through praxis and so it's not really a problem, I guess. But I don't know. I I, I find you know there, there's endless debates about this relationship between base and superstructure and Marxism. I don't really know if anyone has actually found like the perfect way solving them. But it is, I guess, I can see it as like an interesting, interesting way of approaching it because it's especially if you like talk about like you know in debates between like nature and nurture like whether something a social construct or if it's biological like say gender for example well it's it's not really it's kind of both like you know but at the same time i do think that you have to there is a an asymmetry, I think, between base and superstructure. And if there's a danger of kind of like losing that asymmetry by just kind of saying that it's all united through praxis. Yeah, I think it's an interesting intervention. And and like people like, you know, Raymond Williams or something, he's he's making an interesting framework of trying to say, like, at the end of the day, you're still trying to look primarily at human action and human activity whether you're looking at what's called the base or what's called the superstructure. Um, and like the human activity is the point where like, you know, it's not like something happens at the level of the base bypasses people and then happens at the level of the superstructure. Um, but, but yeah, I don't, I don't always entirely know like what exactly this entails for looking at events like because and it's one of those things where he he's citing this you know benjamin thing where benjamin is like yes the the high like the rising prices in in a cask of wine directly corresponds to the way that baudelaire writes about like these things and it's not there's not just like some abstract uh sort of you know like Baudelaire's time and and circumstances it's like it, it's the event and the writing um and and the experience of the event in the writing which is like a pretty like you know cause event sort of framework um but he's trying to like ground it and like you have to understand that it's like through you know this linguistic expression of like a human being who's like writing and and experiencing things so so it's it's both like something i can appreciate but also yeah it, it does feel like it could sort of be interpreted as this fleeing from any more concrete ironically even though he says that like human action is the most concrete part that you need to study it feels like it could actually obscure other forms of like concrete empirical investigation well I th I th and i think that the fact that his argument rests on 
the concept of uh, Gatun's version, like species being from like the economic and philosophical manuscript, he's making a very deliberate appeal to the uh, early Marx as opposed to what uh, might be seen as like his vulgarization through uh, angles or his misinterpretations through uh, angles. So he's trying to provide uh, a kind of image of uh, Marx that doesn't um, revolve around the uh, analysis of the economic, but sort of uh, this analysis of a kind of generic uh, human uh, potentiality uh, that, that traverses those gaps between nature and culture or, you know, the animal and the human. And so it, 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 uh, I, I think that the, uh, uh, I mean, I, I think that this, I guess, citational allegiance to the uh, early Marx is um, is the point, and what and and why uh, Agamben's uh, vision of the or solution to uh, the basin superstructure uh, model would probably preclude more kind of empirical uh, investigations of. Uh, the relationship between economy and society or economy and culture. Right. I think, you know, and it makes sense that he's trying to go back to the early Marxist, more like kind of anthropological approach, because I kind of see that he seems to kind of have this anthropological approach throughout the book. And so it makes sense that he would want to go kind of look to the early Marx where he focuses on like human activity as this like unity of of culture and nature already but like you know i guess this might be my crypto althusarian like coming out but i feel like it's you have to you have to move beyond the early marks in a lot of ways and and i think the anthropological approach has a lot of limitations and how much you can actually kind of do like a scientific historical materialism and so yeah i feel like with like this kind of solution to the base superstructure that a gambin provides, you kind of lose the ability to look at how the economy determines things and how you lose the economic determinist part of Marx. And I feel like a lot of people want to like do that. They want to get away from the economic determinist part of Marx. But I just think that if it's it's just such an important part of Marx is looking at how the economy is ultimately determinant in the last instance. And does have this kind of primary role in explaining social activities. Marx's early writings on on the species being, uh, it, it's one of those things that it's very impressive looking at someone who had a, a fairly good grasp on just kind of what would become the basics of anthropology and, and certain investigations of human um, society and human activity, uh, where this idea of species being is not fully like, fleshed out and, and in a way it's kind of just a way of saying like how humans are biological you know a biological species and hence they have like shared common properties and um a, a kind of nature that that is part of like that that being um while also trying to maintain like you know it we're able to change and and we're able to have things that uh, happen to us that we don't understand uh because of our like natural you know being like we can't always understand how our social uh our social like society impacts our biological being which is kind of part of what you know agamben is getting at but it, it seems to me like precisely because of that it makes more sense kind of to try and understand the perhaps a little bit more mediated or broad idea of like you know a societal context or something um because if you if you go with this idea in, in the way that marx talks about it you can't you can't like really fully make these sort of one-to-one -one causations in in just the human experience because you don't you don't human be according to this like human beings individually don't like rationally and fully just like experience of an event and go 
ah, I've like comprehended this event and this event is going to impact like what I do next. You don't know which correspondence of events will will go into all things. So like you have to have like this broader contextual like framework of of social investigation to like examine the processing of human activity, even even if you can agree with Agamemnon, like the human element of Praxis part is like kind of the focal point for all where all this connects. Um, it it doesn't really make sense to perhaps have this this direct correspondence of like causation or correlation there. One thing I was curious about is what exactly uh, Agamben's politics were at this time. So this was written in, uh, I think, uh, like the late 70s, early 80s, right? Yeah, it was um, first published in 1978, and then Verso put it out in 93. So this was, like, at the time of the whole autonomous, like, movement. So, like, we talked about Negri last time. I mean, this is the end of the 70s, early 80s, so it's probably about when it's falling apart, really. Yeah, it's when the you know the government is starting to really repress things, and like you had in '77, there was kind of like a peak of things. So I guess you know this was probably around the time he was writing this. So I just was curious if you knew anything about how involved he was in all of that. And I really don't know a whole lot biographically about him. The most I know is that he was a big influence on some of the like weirder communizer, you know, like Invisible Committee stuff. Um, and he had like some correspondences with them, I think. And yeah, I know that he's like all of the people I know who are really into like the Tekin, like invisible committee type stuff, are all big into a Gambin. Like he, he feels like he's someone who's in a very kind of, you know, very theoretical individualist, ultra leftist kind of thing. But I don't really know like how many groups or anything he's been like truly tied to yeah i mean he's i think he definitely started out as like a more scholarly philosopher and it's only happened through like his changing interests that he's become more interesting to like uh left-wing activists or political types um I, I think that he's largely remained sort of uh, left-leaning, but he hasn't had any kind of organizational affiliations uh, with like the uh, different political groups. He's, he's sort of largely uh, detached. I mean, I've seen that he's done some stuff talking about basically like human rights abuses, you know, like prisoners, torture, um, you know, Guantanamo Bay kind of stuff. Well, he's kind of also known for his um, like his interventions in the war on terror. Like I think uh, one of his big books was kind of inspired by this um whole idea that like the United States was like unleashing the state of exception after nine eleven. So it's just interesting to me, like how this would connect the kind of his more political works, because it's kind of hard for me to, even though like if this is supposedly like supposed to be a kind of like the beginning of like him like thinking out like a, an ethical like approach to politics or something like that, like it's hard for me to kind of see where you would kind of um take this to get there. Well, I mean, there are largely, I mean, there are hints of. Uh, the concepts that would become more central to his political writings in this book, uh, especially his uh, essay, uh, Notes on Gesture. Gesture returns in a, in a big way in this book, uh, Means Without Ends, uh, which is largely about politics. Um, and I, I guess he kind of said, uh, of touches on it here, and he distinguishes it from uh, a kind of doing that would that uh, tries to accomplish an end other than itself, um, and uh, uh, praxis, which is uh, in a sort of Aristotelian sense, a kind of end in itself, anyway, of trying to uh, uh, do what is right, what is just. And uh, gesture for a gambon is a way of opening up 
the fact that the human being is is a means in itself. Um, it is uh, that the human being is um, well. The, the human being is caught up in you know. Well, the human being is activity in itself, and that um, if we try to conceive of the forms of activity that aren't destined towards a a uh, predetermined end uh that's that is made by a, a state or a uh pre-created community uh then we can sort of uh, recapture a sense of open or free uh politics in the, the form of of the gesture um and i, I think that gesture has uh, a role to play in what he'll say later about uh, the coming community or a community to come, a community that's not necessarily fixed by ethnicity or uh, geography or um, any other uh, telos or determination, but rather a, a community that exists within the making of a community or a community to uh, come. I think I think that's the closest uh, we come. That, that, that I think that the essay on gesture is the closest we come to seeing an idea that will play a bigger part in uh, Agamba's Agamben's uh, wider oeuvre. But uh, uh, yeah, the rest of it, it's like like infancy. I don't think anyone is uh, really working with. Uh, what a uh, gamben has to say about infancy anymore it has more to do with like community and bare life and the state of exception, which is a later turn in his career. I, I, I looked up just like a gamben infancy on Google Scholar, and there's a couple things that relate to it, but it's it tends to fall more into like aesthetic discussion. Um, I mean, some of his later political stuff does still continue the emphasis on philology, and you can see how how something like the final chapter with the kind of manifesto for the review might be a precursor to some of this stuff he's doing with, you know, homo sacer, um, and this kind of like interaction between like the language and the label and, you know, the, the like role assigned and the legal kind of like distinctions. Um, and, and, and he has a couple other books. It looks like that are kind of still focused on these like philological, linguistic kind of genealogies and archaeologies. Um, but I, I, I think there definitely comes a point where he's drawing more on like uh, Foucault and Schmidt for that work. Um, so there's a, there is a kind of break in the uh, larger framework that he's using, but I think that he sticks to kind of similar themes. Kind of my, I was kind of looking through this book, trying to like find hints of like his, like his current like kind of take COVID and stuff. And I think you, know, you would find that probably a lot more in his stuff, like Homo Sacer and stuff on the state of exception, which I honestly find probably more interesting. Well, I think largely the reason that this uh, book was published in the Radical Thinkers series is that it was. Uh, just about the moment when uh, Agamben was much more well known for his stuff on Homo Saka and State of Exception and all of that other stuff. And it was sort of brought back to bring uh, an early uh, Agamben to English audiences. But Yeah, I mean, the translation is from 1993 and then this version was published by Verso in 2007. 2007, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, well, I the first one was published also by Verso in 1993. But oh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, that, that would have been the period where, because, you know, he was an influence on Michael Hart, who's translated some of his stuff I too. Know. And I, I think Coming Community came out around 93. So, yeah. Which I haven't read, which is surprising given that I was into Bland Show and reading <laughs> the, the, which that's involved in the debate between Bland Show and Luke. Jean-Luc Nazi. Um, mm-hmm. So I never read that one. But, I, um, I don't know. Is there anything else I want to hit on with this book? Um, I, I think the um, 
essay on uh, the instant and continuum is uh, kind of interesting. Um, especially, I mean, the, 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 the opening sentence, which is kind of, which definitely exhibits a strong Benjaminian influence. Uh, where, where the hell is it? There we go. Like every conception of history is invariably accompanied by a certain experience of time, which is implicit in it, conditions it, and thereby has to be elucidated. Elucidated? Why, why did I mispronounce that? Similarly, every culture is first and foremost a particular experience of time, and no new culture is possible without an alteration in this experience. The original task of a genuine revolution, therefore, is never merely to change the world, but also, above all, to change time. And throughout that essay, he goes through um, different conceptions of time from uh, the more uh, cyclical and continuous notion of time from ancient Greece to the kind of... Uh, Time promoted by uh, Christianity, which has a kind of a, a direction and a purpose uh, that starts from the fall of man all the way into uh, the second coming of Christ and um, the moment of salvation, and then moves on to the modern conception of time, which is a secularization of this rectilinear and irreversible uh, Christian time that is, uh, that, well, that removes this uh, messianic uh, element and replaces it with concepts incorporated from natural sciences like progress and uh, development and also holds a... Uh, uh, experiential concept of time that's more related to the, the daily toil of industry and, and the workday, etc. And um, one of the points that Agamben makes about uh, the modern conception of time and its disjuncture with uh, history is that the um, uh, the fundamental contradiction of modern man is precisely that he does not yet have an experience adequate to his idea of history and is therefore painfully split up, uh, pain well hang on uh, and is therefore painfully split between his being in time as an elusive flow of instance and his being in history understood as the original dimension of man so Agamben wants to propose a conception of time that would somehow be uh, adequate to what modernity heralds as the, as the time of history as uh, uh, this move towards uh, revolu revolution and he finds it in um, well he, he finds a possible source for this new concept of time in in pleasure uh, because the, the experience of pleasure is wrapped up in a notion of time that's sort of discontinuous it's kind of complete when you're uh enjoying something pleasurably it um it isn't matched to the same kind of time that you experience during the work day and that the, 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 this matches a kind of uh the, the, the discontinuous nature of kind of a, a revolutionary moment or, or or history is properly understood for a gambon um, I, I, and I think it's I don't know I mean it's it's obviously influenced by uh, uh, Benjamin but Benjamin doesn't have this uh, element of of pleasure as a experience of time that's adequate to sort of revolutionary history yeah I mean he's he's kind of taking how like Benjamin has this idea of basically like history uh like in the moment you know like that it's not that there's this point in the future that we're heading towards but rather kind of um 
it's a little bit more of like the telos and like the classic sense that it's more like the organism that is developing according to its you know conditions and movements in the present um and like the events that are unfolding and and growing in in the moment of history um like the state of history is how he calls it uh and he and yeah he kind of like identifies pleasure as sort of the experience of like a state of history rather than you know some uh forward moving uh journey towards like an end point um he has a kind of interesting thing about basically he he ha- he frames it as like we we want to get away from this idea which is kind of he ties it to Hegel, but you can kind of see this in like sort of just existential thought and stuff. Like it's not that man um sort of he says like it's not that people like fall into time and therefore find themselves alienated and and therefore they have an awareness of history. But rather we need to think of the fact that like because human beings are are capable of this of all this stuff with infancy and language and, and praxis that they, they are sort of self-creating through their, the dual inheritance of biology and culture and stuff. They become, they, they are like human beings are historical and therefore they, they have a capacity to temporalize themselves and, and like fall into time through that action. Right, like the essay in Playland, he talks about how like play and ritual are like kind of like these two um dualities through which time is experienced. Like time isn't just this, like you said, isn't just a thing we fall into and experience automatically, but it's like a, almost like something that's constructed through our activities and through these processes of play and ritual. It's a pretty. This is a pretty fascinating, like anthropological subject in its own right like there's a lot of a lot of really interesting research on yeah like how how cultures develop rituals and and play and uh you know represent history and stuff in ways that that do have sort of phenomenological phenomenological um impacts and importance yeah, I think that's another interesting thing you could do with some of this stuff is kind of uh, bring in a dialogue with anthropological research and kind of look at the, uh, I guess, the construction of time and the experience of time and how that ex- is uh, socially developed and whatnot. I, I feel like this happened. It happened throughout this uh, this book that he would throw in terminology from uh, thinkers that probably would be familiar to uh, philosophical, uh, well, the, the Italians who were more versed in, uh, you know, uh, philosophy and uh, linguistic, but and linguistics, but that um, aren't uh, generally, you know. But, the, but the, generally, people aren't literate with like uh, with, with all of the Kantian categories and like the uh, ideas of uh, the structural linguists, uh, Benavistes, or how how Benavistes' work relates to Levi Strauss and all of that sort of stuff. So um, you need to the, 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 anyone who comes to this book has to is assumed to have a great deal of familiarity with. Like uh, the different debates between like uh, schools of philosophy and schools of uh, thought in different disciplines, like linguistics and also kind of uh, medieval studies as well. Yeah, he also kind of brings in a lot of like Saucerian, like linguistic jargon that kind of went over my head, to be honest, but. Uh, I do think that some, I, I've been listening to, uh, I mean, not that this in and of itself is always like the best citation for anything that you claim to know, but I've been listening to this podcast called The Secret History of Western Esotericism, 
podcast, um, which is a guy who's basically a historian of esoterica, Western esotericism, you know, and he's going through kind of like the history of, you know, the religious cults, uh, mystery cults, um, Kabbalah, like theories of the Rosicrucians. And it sounds like very like, you know, like Da Vinci Code stuff, but he's he's he really does go through like the history of what we know and how how a lot of times are what we think we know about stuff comes because later groups claim the mantle of something like we don't actually have much evidence there was ever something like the Rosicrucians. But, you know, because people thought there were Rosicrucians, they're kind of developed people who claimed to be Rosicrucians and that kind of thing. Um, and but like re- he's been going uh, parts I've been reading have been on, mostly on ancient stuff like Egypt and Greek and Roman thought. Um, and it just made me think with some of the stuff that Agamben claims here, given that it's from the late 70s, like how much of this might be out of date and his like cultural representation and his philology of like, like we know that the Greeks thought of this thing in this term in their society, you know. Like that was one of the things that I thought would be interesting to look at in terms of his argumentation, how some of this might have been changed in its frameworks from like modern stuff. Yeah, that's always an issue whenever you're reading stuff that deals with these really obscure, like practically like archaeological questions is just oh, how how do I know that this is like actually the most up to date information on this? And also that uh, kind of uh, informed secondary reading of uh, this book, you're not always entirely sure whether Agamben is reacting to like particular debates within uh, uh, different disciplines or between different Italian intellectuals at the time, or whether it is uh, something that's more like... uh, idiosyncratic and just a matter of like his own scholarly interest um and i think that the kind of content that that kind of context of like what what, was a gambin reacting towards certain thinkers or like uh, people who had differing interpretations of like the nativity crib or uh stuff like that i think it would be that, that kind of um that sort of introductory or uh, contextual information would be uh, helpful for kind of figuring out what uh, what are the stakes um, in uh, Gambon's arguments. Uh, well, I will say, finishing up, uh, it, it is he is you know despite these being esoteric kind of topics, he's a good writer. Like he is enjoyable to read, and it's a short book. Um, I, I enjoyed it a lot more than I kind of was expecting to, um, of the ones that we've read so far for set two. Yeah. I think, you know, he doesn't write to make himself understandable. Like you said, he's very esoteric, but he does write in an aesthetically intriguing way. It's kind of, you know, there, it's sort of like when you're reading, you know, like French theory or something. I always say that there's kind of the side that talks about how, you know, they're they're deconstructing and they're dissolving things and they're they're finding, you know, meaning in poetry or whatever. And you read and you're like, this is just hard to understand in every way. And then there are ones where it's like, okay, this is like very abstract and hard to understand. And you may not have like a real kind of point, but they when they say that they're like investigating like the poetic or whatever they are at least actually poetic like you know it's the difference between reading like derrida and reading like henry lefebvre um yeah sometimes it's a cop out to say like oh like it's just about getting you to think about stuff like the the poetic uh, non-concrete like vague nature of it is part of the experience of thought and and sometimes that's kind of a cop out, but it it at least does kind of read well in certain in certain respects, and it 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 does have a, a fun kind of like oh I'm I'm reading about stuff that like maybe I haven't thought about before, and he and he's making like some interesting claims. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, it makes sense with his writing style that he's kind of trying to discuss like the loss of um, experience through like the like, whole linguistic aspect. So it, it, it fits together. It fits. Mm. And he definitely seems to know quite a bit about philology and linguistic history, um, or at least what was thought to have been known at the time. Yeah. It's like the Italian version of French theory, basically. That's all for this episode. If you want to support the podcast, you can always provide $3 a month on Patreon and receive our bonus episodes. Our last bonus episode, I got to talk with Lauren Goldner, a Marxist scholar and activist, about his career spanning from Berkeley in the 60s to South Korea and beyond. We also appreciate it if you give us a positive review on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. If you want to keep up with our podcast, our next book will be Strategies of Deception by Paul Virilio, who we've read before. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time. This is a problem. What I want to suggest is that when this event, anthropogenic event, also the event of language happened, the difference between the, what was implied in this was not only the cognitive power that uh, this is giving me. The difference between animal and uh, human language is of another order. It is as if there is, of course, even if you are not scientists, we see that there, there exists an animal. But it is as if the animals do not want to engage completely.